Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Bill Santana Lee, CEO of Nightscope, an autonomous security robots platform that's raised over $120 million in funding. Bill, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Brad, thanks uh, for having us. Good to chat with you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So to kick things off, can you just give us a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. I'm the uh, chairman and CEO of uh, Nightscope. We build uh, autonomous security robots. We trade on NASDAQ under the ticker symbol KSCP. By way of background, I'm an ex uh, Ford Motor Company executive. I uh, spent a lot of time in Detroit working on stuff with four wheels that moves and are kind of big. And over the last 10 years, have been building some new technologies to see if we can help our officers and guards across the country make the US the uh, safest country in the world. A little bit of a grandiose mission, but uh, we're a decade into it and, and made some progress. And uh, Looking forward for the next uh, couple of decades. And I'm sure you learned a lot from your time at Ford, but if you had to pick out one big takeaway, what would that be? I'll give you maybe a couple of perspectives. One, I think Ford Motor Company for me was an awesome training ground. I, if you go look on my LinkedIn profile, I look unemployable during that period of time. I've got a new job every six, nine, 12 months. I got promoted and double promoted a lot of times. And I got to work in almost every aspect of the business, you know, from component engineering, systems engineering to, you know, full vehicle engineering, product strategy, market research, manufacturing, rationalization, building new plants, uh, a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And I guess the takeaway from there is your career development is your career development. You kind of need to go seek out what might, you know, be a challenge for you. And sometimes they seek you out. And I don't know how many times I turned down something or took an interview to take another position and, you know, really didn't want the job and let them have it with all my views and perspectives. And somehow what I thought I blew the interview is what got me the job. So, you know, life's interesting, but, um, I think companies like that, where, you know, at the time was 430,000 employees, I was the youngest senior executive worldwide and I'm eternally grateful for the amount of experience I got in a short period of time from over every perspective. And you got to take your career by the horns and and do what you can with it. Nice. I love that. And a couple of other follow-up questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick. First one is what CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? I'm not a big CEO guy. I'm usually the proponent Opponent and supporter of the founder. You got to have a screw loose to be doing this stuff. And what fascinates me, and I think what drives a lot of founders, is you're willing to do the unrealistic, illogical, sometimes dumb, sometimes stupid things to force a, a victory on the other side. And, you know, once you take the title, like literally just CEO, and you're, I don't know, and I hate these terms, but the wartime CEO, the peacetime CEO, and you're kind of just rinse and repeat kind of thing. Those are different people. Founders are 
absolutely special. And and that could be a you know a founder of a tech company. It could be a founder of a an automaker, or it could be a you know a musician that came out of nowhere and bootstrapped and you know built an empire. And I I think that driven relentless quality is is kind of what I I gravitate towards. And are there any specific founders that come to mind? Oh, geez. I mean, there's the normal ones like Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk or, or, you know, from recent history. But I mean, I'm a big metalhead. But if you look at what Puff Daddy and, and Jay-Z built, is in complete insane level of business acumen from folks that started at the bottom and, you know, and, and continue to build. And I kind of find that fascinating. Yeah. You know, I just read a Jay-Z book probably about two years ago. And it was such a fascinating look behind the scenes. You know, you see them on screen or on stage or just, you know, you know, these artists exist, but you don't really think about the business behind them and what they're building. And at the end of the day, they are just entrepreneurs and founders and they're, they're building a brand. And it's a, it's always fun to look at that, I think. Yep. Yep. What about books? Are there any specific books that have had a major impact on you? Um, it's an oldie but goodie, but you know, Ben Horowitz is the hard thing about hard things. It's just a very cold, realistic look at what a founder and CEO has to go through. It's almost too on point. Like it's really behind the scenes and you know, it's funny. You come across a lot of folks, younger folks early in their careers and I, I want to be CEO and you know, they've got two years experience and, and don't really know what they're asking or getting themselves into. You go read that book, you know, after you read that, you know, then you can have a, a real talk with yourself if, if that's what you really want. Because, you know, being a CEO is one of the most excruciating, painful, sometimes thankless, draining jobs you can have. I mean, there's a lot of wins and a lot of excitement, but it's challenging beyond belief and you usually don't get a chance to rest and all the hard stuff ends up on your desk. So. You know, it's part of the the role, but I think, you know, sometimes magazines and blogs and whatever glamorize, you know, what a startup founder or CEO goes through and, you know, it looks all really glitzy, but people don't realize how hardcore it needs to be in order to be successful. And keep in mind, you know, 95% of the startups fail. And part of it is the CEO, the founder picked the wrong thing. They didn't have enough passion, enough belief down to the bone that they're willing to go to the extremes to force something to happen the way, the way they want it. They're like, okay, well, XYZ technology is, is in vogue and you know, a bunch of VCs are writing checks. So let me go build a company that I can get funded, but they really, their heart's not in it and it'll show. Like if you can't convince yourself, your family, your friends, your you know, recruits, how are you going to convince the clients, analysts, you know, suppliers and what have you to go on your crazy ride? Like you got to really, really believe in it. Yeah. You know, I love the the premise of that book and why Ben Horowitz says that he wrote it was, you know, because when he was going through his journey, building his company, he was looking for resources and books that could help him along. And he would go to these books and they were all written by management consultants and they just had, you know, fluffy bullshit advice, like hire a great team. He's like, you know, there's no chapter about, okay, how do we fire 95% of our people or, you know, whatever his exact numbers were. But I like that he, you know, didn't find a manual out there that he needed. And then after he had his big win, he took the time to actually go out and write a truly 
tactical manual to help founders. I, I just think that's such an awesome thesis behind the book. And I think it's created a lot of value. I would say that 80% of founders that come on the show, that is the most influential business book that they've ever read. So definitely had an impact there. Yep, absolutely. Now let's dive deeper into Nightscope because it's such a cool company. You know, a lot of times we're speaking to enterprise SaaS companies or cybersecurity companies or these tools that exist online, but you don't just exist online. It's a physical product. So can you just tell us at a a high level a bit more about the product? Then I'd love to dive into the origin story behind the company. Sure, sure. So Brett, we work for Big Brother. We're the proponents of getting all the robots to come here and take everyone's job and and kill everyone. And that's the kind of the premise of the not just me. Um, (laughs) So the robots we build are a unique combination of four extremely difficult technologies all rolled into one. It's about autonomy and autonomous technology, robotics, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. And we build these machines to run 24-7, 365 to give officers and guards eyes, ears, and voice on the ground in multiple locations at the same time. And we've operated now over 2 million hours across the country. And the way to think about it is brutally simple. One is one, provide a physical deterrence to stop negative behavior from happening in the first place. Like if I put a a cop car in front of your home or your office, Brett, criminal behavior will change. That simple premise has been proven in the marketplace to work. And if you want to check out how effective these machines have been, just go to nightscope.com slash crime and you can see a nice long list of all the positive things these machines have already done for society and we're, we're just getting started. I think the second thing is all around data. The machines generate over 90 terabytes of data a year that no human is going to be able to process. So we put that in a digestible format in a, in a software application that we call the KSOC or the Nightscope Security Operations Center. And that where a 911 dispatch or a security operations center can literally live feed that raw data from the machines or do investigations or, or what have you. And I guess lastly, we you know primarily... Wherever you might see an officer or a guard patrolling is an opportunity for Nightscope. So most of our clientele are, you know, corporate campuses, commercial real estate, schools, residential, manufacturing plants, a lot of hospitals. Actually, this week was a little bit insane for us. We have about half a dozen law enforcement agency clients for our portfolio products. But this week we signed a contract with the NYPD and uh, the mayor came out and him and the entire NYPD brass welcomed us in New York with our crazy robot roadshow, which is a pod full of uh, robots that uh, we brought into Times Square. And it was uh, a little surreal to have uh, the robot roadshow have a police escort into town and then have a a full-on press conference. It was uh, an incredible three days and we're you know, eternally grateful for Mayor Adams' uh, leadership in utilizing technology to help public safety and for the NYPD commissioner and and everyone on the staff there that are helping to redefine public safety. I, I think the crazy conversation I had with the mayor was a, a little while ago was, you know, we're having the introductory discussion. And I said, you know, what we really want to do at Nightscope is see if we can make the U.S. the safest country in the world. And he did not flinch. And the first thing he said was, well, we're interested in, in not only that, but we want to make sure that New York City is one of the safest cities in the country. And to have the mayor of the largest city in the nation and the support of the 
largest law enforcement agency in the country was just uh, a little surreal. But, uh, you know, we worked hard to get here. We still got a lot of work ahead of us, but it's been uh, a momentous week. Wow. That's amazing. And that's, that's very timely. I'm glad I got to speak with you right after that big win. Yeah, we're, uh, I'm still trying to recover from all the stuff that happened this week, but we're really excited and we're going to start deploying the first machine um, in Manhattan, probably uh, here at the beginning of the summer. And do you view it as these robots are replacing a human that previously used to be able to cover this ground? Or is a big part of this getting coverage in areas that previously just didn't have the manpower and the capacity to cover it? It's highly dependent on the location, but let me walk you through the math problem, as I call it, uh, and that's probably be beneficial for the listeners. So two different math problems. One's around kind of budget and process. So most people don't realize, but our country has a $800 billion budget that we provide the Department of Defense. There's one person in charge, a Secretary of Defense, and there is a massive, massive a military industrial complex that delivers innovation like crazy. It takes a long time. It's a lot, really expensive, but we give every soldier in a theater of war an incredible, incredible level of technological capability. And there's awesome companies like a Lockheed Martin or Raytheon or Northrop Grumman building all this stuff. And there's a process, there's risk capital and all that other good thing. But on our own soil, we don't have that. So the U.S. Department of Justice and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security effectively have no federal jurisdiction over 19,000 law enforcement agencies and 8,000 private security firms. There's literally not one person in charge. There is no innovation process, effectively no risk capital. And that's why in the year 2023, you've got a security guard out in the parking lot with a, literally a number two pencil and a notepad. And we wonder why crime and terrorism has a $2 trillion negative economic impact on the U.S. every year. It's a hidden tax we all pay in blood, tears, and treasure. So that's kind of the first math problem. The second one is a little bit more maybe obvious, but our country has about 1.5 million-ish law enforcement professionals. There's about a million security guards. So that's about two and a half million people that are running 24-7, right? You can't triple shift a human. So at any given time, there's 600-odd thousand plus humans trying to secure 332 million Americans across 50 states. This is a ridiculous, ridiculous problem where maybe it's not a popular thing to say, but we don't have enough officers and, and security guards to properly secure the country. But somehow, we would never put a, a soldier in a, in a theater of war but with this lack of technology and capability, but somehow it's okay for these two and a half million people to get up every morning and, and take a bullet for you and your family with the, again, the technological equivalent of a number two pencil and a notepad, and that's got to stop. And so what we're planning on doing and what we aspire to do is go put a million machines in network that have every form factor possible to better secure, you know, indoors and outdoors because criminals and terrorists can be anywhere. So Nightscope needs to be everywhere. And then get all these machines to be able to see, feel, hear, smell, and speak and do a hundred times more than a human can possibly ever do. But these machines are running 24-7, right? Uh, don't need a break, not you know, texting, not sleeping. And so having those 600-odd thousand people, humans, have at their fingertips a million machines 
that can give them almost superhuman capabilities to them better secure the places people live, work, study, and visit. Now we've got a chance to actually make a massive dent in the problem. And that is the math problem we intend to solve. Wow, that's amazing. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And what's that split between selling these to the government and then selling these to private corporations? Is that like 50-50 split or what does that look like? In my opinion, my professional opinion, I think it's ill-advised for young technology companies to do business to government sales as their initial go-to-market. So we intentionally focused on the private sector to prove all the stuff out. And you know, now that we've proven it out, we're starting to work on law enforcement agencies uh, as we just discussed. But the bigger one that we're almost done, or hoping we're almost done, we've spent now over two years on a nightmare cybersecurity review with the U.S. federal government. Our sponsor there is the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. And we're hopeful that sometime in 2023, you know, it's up to the government now, we've submitted everything that they requested to get an ATO or an authority to operate. And that's going to get extremely intriguing for Nightscope and likely an inflection point in my kind of medium long-term view, because it's not just the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs that could be a client of Nightscope. You know, they, the chief security officer there has uh, 143 plus police departments he needs to manage for all the VA hospitals. We happen to have numerous healthcare clients, so it's a good segue. But your listeners might want to think about like, hmm, I wonder like who secures the Social Security Administration? How about the U.S. Postal Service? I wonder who secures NASA. I wonder if the Customs Border Protection could use more technology. I wonder who secures all the national monuments and national parks and all the data centers. You know, I wonder how many warehouses FEMA has. What about the landlord for the federal government? The GSA manages about 10,000 federal buildings, and they have 15,000 officers and guards at the Federal Protective Services attempting to secure those 10,000 buildings with, I'll politely say, dated or non-existent technology. Might that be an opportunity for all the stuff that we're building? So I, I think long-term, we don't really look at it from government or private sector or this vertical or that vertical. The founders of our country would be appalled that we ended up with a society where going to work, going to school, or going to movie theater literally came with a risk of being shot or killed. So we kind of need to really focus not on subdividing, quote unquote, the market for crime, but instead we need to kind of fix it across society. And that's why one of the reasons, you know, we ended up raising capital from 35,000 investors because you're going to need a massive cross-section of society to demand this change. The country's over 200 years old. We're literally on our 46th president. No one has fixed this problem. And unless the private sector comes up with a new solution, the government will not get this fixed. And it's a very you know, timely interview. And yeah, it's been a weird, I would say, week for me and my girlfriend or my fiance now, because we're about 
two blocks away from where the stabbing happened in San Francisco um, with Bob Lee, the, the founder of Cash App. So it's been very strange and I've never felt this way before where you know, it's in this spot where I go by on runs every day. I walk my dog by this spot every day and someone just got knifed and you know, killed on the street, which is just a very weird feeling walking around and having that fear in my head of, you know, is this person that I'm passing going to stab me? And I was thinking through that of just, you know, how do we not have a solution here? How are there, you know, very few cameras that are watching? So even if something does happen, they could at least figure out who did it. So it seems like what you're building is the is the answer to that, because you, you can't just throw humans at it, right? You have to have technology like this or technology of some kind to really solve that problem. Yeah, correct. And and Brett, I mean, on the on the more positive side, we as a society, as 300 plus million American citizens do not have to live like this. You should be thinking about your wedding plans, the excitement of this period in your life, and not that thought should never be entering in your head. And just, all right, so let the crazy founder for a moment dream a little. Let's say Nightscope achieves our mission. We made the U.S. the safest country in the world. Now what? Well, imagine what, you know, something as benign as your insurance rates would look like. What about the viability of someone's local business? What about, I don't know, the volatility of financial markets? What do you think about property values? Like what happens to commercial real estate and residential real estate? Like, can we take all that money and dump it in education and infrastructure and, you know, get back to normal civilization? Because this is insane. We cannot be just continuing to scream at each other that there is a problem. We all know there's a problem. Like, can we focus on fixing it? And that's why we're grateful for all the 35,000 investors that came out and supported Nightscope and are still doing so in making sure that we can continue this kind of very long build and we're kind of building in public while, while we're at it. Because again, no one in the history of mankind has ever done this at scale. But, you know, we, you know, just did our regulatory filings here recently and, you know, double digit growth. We've got a five plus million dollar backlog of new orders that have come in that we're scrambling to get out the door. So I think we've, you know, hopefully hitting here an, an inflection point and people starting to realize that, oh, it actually works. You've helped a law enforcement agency issue an arrest warrant for a sexual predator. You helped or Nightscope help with that robot to apprehend an armed gunman. You help solve a, or, and stop a domestic violence abuse case. Like the list goes on and on and on. And we're like literally just getting started. And to clarify there then, do these robots, they don't engage with someone, right? It's more of surveillance and monitoring. And then if something does happen, they can call upon a human or are these robots like designed to kill? Are, are they armed or what does that look like? So we have an arresting robot, we have a tasing robot, we have a punch you in the face robot. Like we have all kinds of flavors, Brett. Just kidding. Yeah, I have a feeling you're trolling me there. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if you go look at the contractual requirements and in some cases regulatory requirements of what a security guard is supposed to do, they're supposed to observe and report. And if I remember correctly, it's about 17 states. It's literally illegal for a security guard to put their hands on you. And so the strategy here is to have the robots deter the activity in the first place, but then observe and report. 
and let the humans do the decision-making and let the humans do the enforcement. If you're serious about this and you're a you know, serious person trying to discuss a, a serious problem in the country, you need society to trust this new technology. And the last thing you need to be doing is tasing someone, handcuffing them, punching them in the face or whatever silliness, you know, ends up on social media. Like you need to think more thoroughly as to how you would approach this in the real world, right? And that goes down to even the design of the machines. You know, we argue over pixels over here. And I'll just give you an extreme example, Brett. If you saw the robot and it was, uh, you know, camouflage or matte black and it was screeching really loud, ominous sounds and all the lights were red, like, you know, conversation's over. Like, why, why are we talking about this? This is not going to work in society. So the colors that we pick on the machine, every radius, every surface treatment, every font, you know, how we position things is because we're not on a military exercise here, right? We need to operate in society and you have to have enough of a intimidation or, or deterrence factor to get that suspect not to do something that they're about to do. But you also can't scare the kid and you can't scare grandma, right? So you got to kind of thread that needle and you know, fortunately, I think we're at least in the right quadrant. There's always improvements to be made, but, you know, we've got a lot of people fascinated with robots and, you know, get gaining an emotional attachment. I think almost all our machines seem to have uh, gotten a name or a nickname attached to them. And, you know, our clients get emotionally connected to them. And, you know, it's funny, we, that robot roadshow, um, if you go to nightscope.com slash roadshow, you can see this crazy pod that's been traversing across the country. We've now done 78 stops in 24 states to get, you know, the media, prospective clients, investors be able to touch, see, feel, and kind of experience the robots. And it brings the kid out of everyone. Like, I remember we put it at the, the Ronald Reagan building in Washington, D.C., and you get all these, you know, very formal, conservative in, in just nature, government officials coming in, you know, suit tie, the whole deal. And then, you know, 20 minutes into it, everyone's doing robot selfies and calling their family. And, you know, it just brings the kid out of everyone. It's hilarious to watch. So I think we're on a good path. What we're doing is technically extremely difficult, but we got it working. So uh, we're excited about the future. Amazing. I love it. And I love the mission and I, I love the fact that you're really taking technology to solve a major societal problem. I love it, but I think there's probably some critics who don't. So I'm sure you've experienced that where today it's almost like it's not okay for Silicon Valley tech companies to support the government and to support defense. I think that's shifting a little bit. And I know there's some big investors and there's some big companies that are really trying to shift that conversation and say, hey, you know, Silicon Valley needs to be supportive of law enforcement and needs to be supportive of defense because that's what makes the whole country really work. What are your views on that conversation? Have you seen that evolve for the better since 2013? Or do you still have a lot of critics who you know, kind of criticize this type of work with law enforcement and the government? Right. Like if you are Mother Teresa, you're building incredible technology and in or Elon Musk, or you're the most hated villain, like it just, no matter what you do, people are going to criticize you, right? 
And you might as well just do what you think is is right and in the best interest and the most important national security interest of the United States of America. I don't give a damn of what people want to say or not say. Our job here is to protect the naysayers as well as protect our supporters. If you're serious about the mission of securing the country, you can't start delineating like, well, you know, this analyst said this thing and it hurt my feelings. Like, crawl up. You know, we, when we first launched this or got news coverage back in 2013, I remember there was an analyst in DC who was like, you know, this is the exact hyper surveillance that puts people on edge. And my answer to him then and my answer to him now, 10 years later, you know, is, is what? You know what puts people on edge? Getting shot at, right? That puts people on edge. So I think we need to kind of, you know, as the mayor and, and the, the team at NYPD reminded everyone, you know, when fingerprint technology came out, oh my God, you know, this is terrible. Oh, 911, you know, that was a new thing at one point in time, right? Or, you know, looking at statistics, tasers, like, you can go through the whole lineup issues of, oh my God, this thing's going to you know come and kill us. You know, lately is the AI thing, right? It's like, well, I imagine the, the talk when electricity first came out, I was like, geez, I wouldn't mess with that. You know, that's like, I think that's the work of the devil. You know, I've seen it kill people. Like that's sort of really dangerous thing. Like we, we shouldn't be messing with that. You know, and every 10 years we go through this drama of, oh, something new and we're really uncomfortable with it. And then you fast forward 10, 20 years, like I can't live without this thing. And this is going to happen with our autonomous security robots. Like today, Brett, you wouldn't be allowed to build a building without a smoke detector or a fire alarm. Like it would be literally ludicrous. You would be criticized. You probably won't get the permit, this, that, and the other thing. I can see there's a tipping point in the future where you didn't want to pay the seven bucks an hour to properly secure your facility. I mean, you're like reckless and maybe we don't insure you, you know, maybe the insurance underwriters like, you know, huff, unless you have autonomous security at this place, we're not going to, we're not going to write the policy. Right. And that, you know, flexion point will happen. Uh, now that we've proven the technology now it's going to be up to society as to how fast this scales and how fast, you know, we start making a big impact. And, you know, the people that are going to be really upset at the end of the day, Brett, it's the criminals and terrorists. We're coming after them. Makes a lot of sense. And, and I love that perspective. Now, I want to also ask you about the journey and the decision to become a publicly traded company. So as you were thinking through that, I'm sure it was a, a big decision, right? Do you stay private and keep raising private capital or, or do you go public? So take us back to that decision and, and how you made that decision in the end. Well, first of all, for the record, everything has gone according to plan down to the minute. There has been no <laughs> deviations on anything. And, and we're excited that, you know, everything worked out. Uh, we're like even a minute early. But the public listing, you know, controversial for most companies. I think we had, you know, raised a significant amount of money privately. The manner in which we raised the capital, we were effectively doing a lot of the public company reporting. So a different way of saying that is we had all the negative aspects of being publicly traded without any of the benefits. So I, I wanted to get us out of that purgatory. I think the second, you know, access to the wider capital markets is important. You know, a lot of startups love and relish the freedom of being private. 
but you know sometimes depending on what's going on your function of getting capital or not getting capital it's almost binary i won't say it's binary but it's almost binary in the public markets it's usually an argument about the cost of capital as opposed to is there capital and i think lastly given what we're trying to do most prospective clients partners the government would prefer to you know work with a transparent publicly traded company you know with proper audited financials you know governance and all that other good stuff so i think from a kind of branding standpoint that works but the public markets are uh you know, a whole other beast. And there's stuff you don't control. Like, you know, we don't control interest rates. We don't control inflation. We don't control pandemics or supply chain issues or geopolitical, you know, tensions. And, you know, I, I get, I don't know how many messages, texts, emails, voicemails, DMs, whatever it is like, hey, Bill, you need to you know, fix the stock price. And it's like, they think I'm sitting back here with a lever. Like, I'm going to go change the stock price today. And a lot of people just don't understand, like, it's supply and demand, right? If uh, there's more buyers than sellers, likely the price will go up. And if, if the opposite is likely true, all we can do is continue to work on the financial performance of the company and keep growing it and, you know, keep telling the story. And then the other, you know, third of the equation of all the macro stuff we can't control. And you just got to, you just got to accept it. Amazing. I love that. And last question here before we wrap up, let's zoom out into the future three to five years from today. What does the company look like? And I ask that knowing that you you know, probably are somewhat limited in what you can talk about. So feel free to answer that in whatever way you possibly can. I think I changed the horizon to a little bit much further out. Um, and then I could probably answer your question. And I think that it looks something like this. What we're trying to build is the, and started building, we need to build the analogous company to Northrop, to Lockheed, to some of the military contractors I mentioned, but instead of focusing on the battlefield is to focus on the homeland and focus on the Department of Justice, Homeland Security, the 19,000 law enforcement agencies and 8,000 private security firms and build that technological innovator that will come up with new capabilities, new processes and support them to pay as much respect to our officers and guards as we do to our soldiers. And I think that looks like a 30 billion or $40 billion company with, if you're to graph it on the X-axis, a very wide portfolio of products. And remember I said, criminals and terrorists can be anywhere. And so if you want to you know, address the issue, Nightscope needs to be everywhere and securing the, I don't know, the entrance to a federal courthouse is very different than securing the underpass of a bridge versus an airport uh, versus a hotel or a school. So you're gonna need a very wide range of products from extra small to medium large, extra large and extra extra large, including patrolling you know, cities and highways. And then on the Y-axis, you need all million of those machines, again, to do what I said earlier, to see, feel, hear, smell, and speak and make a massive change and upgrade to the public safety infrastructure. It's so cool. Such an exciting mission and such an exciting vision. Bill, I'd love to keep you on and keep asking you questions, but I know we are up on time here and I, I don't want to hold you over and I want to save some questions for uh, round two and a, a part two interview, hopefully down the road. So before we wrap up here, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where should they go? 
absolutely go to nightscope.com. All the social media handles are at the bottom. If you just want a quick overview of the company and kind of what we're doing, go to nightscope.com slash rise, R-I-S-E, as in rise of the robots. And it's important to get the story out there. And we can't do this by ourselves. You know, we'd be highly arrogant and naive to think that one company is going to secure the entire U.S. in a problem that's, you know, centuries old. We're going to need at least a million humans to rally around and support the effort, open doors, share, argue, debate, and discuss how we want to operate as a society and really think about, are we giving the officers and guards the appropriate tools for them to do their jobs effectively? You know, yes or no. I love it. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about everything that you're building and, and really dive deep into this mission, vision, and the problem and, you know, elevating the problem that exists here. Because I think it's something that many people like myself just are you know, kind of living with and just don't really see that there's an end in sight and, and don't think it's ever going to be fixed. So I feel much happier knowing that there's founders and, and entrepreneurs out there like you that are using technology to solve this problem. So thanks for joining us and thanks for all that you're doing. It's, it's really inspiring to see. Appreciate it, Brett. And as I often say, and we'll say until we achieve the mission, uh, long night scope and short the criminals. We'll see you on the other side. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.